This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis. I'm the host of RN Drive, an afternoon briefing on the ABC News Channel, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm David Spears, host of Insiders, also joining you from Wurundjeri Country and filling in for Fran Kelly this week. Soon, PK, we're going to be joined by David Crow, the Chief Political Correspondent of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. He's always great to talk to, and particularly we'll talk to him about the, well, really interesting report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. A bit of a, well, a, a, a reminder, really, I suppose, and an update as well of the bleak future we face if we don't do more to cut global emissions. Let's first, though, PK, begin with all things COVID. Here in Victoria, our lockdown's been extended for another week. Mm-hmm. So we're going through a little Friday of, of next week uh, as the Andrews government tries to contain the Delta outbreak here. Um, but as we know, New South Wales isn't faring any better. I think, you know, arguably uh, far worse. The lockdown now into week seven uh, in Sydney. Uh, they have seen record case numbers too in the last few days and the virus spreading into regional and rural areas as well. But let, let's start with this. The New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, is really talking up uh, the need to vaccinate, but in particular, if they do get six million jabs in arms, some freedoms could return. Have a listen. What the end of August means is if we have six million jabs, it gives us opportunities to think about how we can ease uh, some restrictions that we currently have for people who live in communities with low lower case numbers, but high rates of vaccination. There are significant communities in Greater Sydney uh, that are in that situation. So, David, essentially New South Wales is talking about an incentive to get vaccinated. This is, I think, Gladys Berejiklian's, not only her way out of lockdown, which we'll get to in a second, she's obviously doing because she's struggling to get even close to COVID zero, if you look at the daily numbers, which are very disappointing, but it's also about... I think, really um, accelerating the vaccination pace. There is nothing better than the idea that maybe you might have some freedoms if you get vaccinated. So it is clearly, I think, working. But what's really interesting about it, though, is the uneven nature of it all, right? Actually, one of one of our colleagues make this point today. Um, this is a Thursday morning we're recording. David Lipson saying, you know, think about the optics here. Mm. If you get high vaccination rates in some of those leafy, you know, white bread suburbs yeah. and you lift some of the restrictions and then southwest Sydney is it's in a harsh lockdown, lockdown I agree. because their vaccination rates aren't as high or something, it's a pretty problematic way of running your city, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so look, there's, there's a few things to say about where this whole positioning is at right now for Gladys Berejiklian. I get that she wants to create every incentive, every motivation she can for people to go and get a jab. And, and the prospect of greater freedoms is probably a good motivator. It would uh, motivate me. Yeah, roll up your sleeve. And we are seeing in Sydney and New South Wales generally some terrific numbers with their daily vaccinations. I mean, they are they're killing it compared mm. to every other state at the moment. You can understand why. Because yeah, they don't want to be killed. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, but that is actually That's the truth. Exactly they know it. the truth. And they're sick of this lockdown mm. and they're hearing that the way out is vaccination. So good on them. They're rolling up their sleeves. Uh, but a few things. 
it, it, it's still a, a little unclear to me. Six million jabs isn't 50% fully vaccinated. Mm-mm. It's something less than that. Uh, six million is roughly half the population of New South Wales, yep. but they would have to be double jabbed to be fully vaccinated. I don't think she's suggesting that. So if she's going to relax restrictions at less than 50% um, full vaccination, that's way short of what the Doherty Institute and the National Cabinet's agreed mm-hmm. with 70%, then 80%. Uh, so what would she be willing to relax? Again, she's being very, and I think deliberately vague about that. She's you know, yet to receive, as far as we know, any advice from Kerry Chant, the chief health officer, about what steps. But um, we, could, we could, I don't know, play a game here and have a bit of a guess. Mm. Um, CBD office workers going back? Mm. I don't know. Maybe some school kids going back if they're fully vaccinated and in an area of Sydney that's, that's like doing okay. But, but you're right and, and Lippo's right. You're going to Mm. exacerbate this divide that's really quite stark in Sydney already between the West and South West and the rest. Yeah, and that is is incredibly toxic for social cohesion. Yeah. And if you listen to the people at the front line at the moment, social cohesion is in trouble in Sydney and it matters. It's not just about suppressing the virus or managing the virus. It's also about making sure your community is safe and cohesive. Yeah. And I think on that test, that that's a huge challenge for Gladys Berejiklian at the moment. And I don't think they're getting that right. No. And for people who aren't familiar with Sydney, um, it is already at the best of times, a divided city, right? Between the wealthier suburbs and the not so wealthy suburbs. I listened in on a focus group a couple of weeks ago from people in Western Sydney and it kept coming through. What about those people in Bondi wandering around without masks, going to the beach? Here we are, lockdown, getting no help, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, and that's a very real sentiment. They've got boots on the ground now in, in these these hotspot areas of uh, West and South West Sydney. So yeah, can you imagine uh, if the other parts start opening up? It's a real, there's no perfect answer here though, is there? Because I get it, some sort of motivation of get vaccinated and you will get some freedom is an important message, mm. but at what point, what freedoms, the detail. The detail really is key and, and it's going to be uh, troubling for the Premier because yeah. it, today's developments, and there'll be more on this, depends when you listen to this podcast, yeah. is that other states and territories, namely Victoria, are raising at a national level concerns around this strategy, right? Yeah. Because essentially, let's call it for what it is, seems to me that while New South Wales originally wanted very much, they'd still like it, get to COVID zero close to, you know, the idea yeah. is that all of your numbers are in quarantine. They they don't think they're going to get there. I don't. Look, it's looking very unlikely they're going to get back I down to I can't find anyone zero. who thinks that's going to happen. And, and, the, and in the meantime, you are seeing cases leak out of Sydney into Newcastle, into Tamworth, into Armadale, into Byron Bay, into uh, Dubbo. Um, this, this is why the, the Victorian and other state uh, governments are thinking, you know, can they really stop this bleeding into our states as well? That's why they're really concerned about any relaxation Mm. of the restrictions in Sydney. Mm. And then if we look at Victoria and all of the language being used by the Premier in Victoria, it's about the New South Wales incursions, isn't Mm. it? Mm. Because at the political level in Victoria, the sixth lockdown, which we're both enduring, our children are at home, it's incredibly hard and fatiguing to have had this rolling situation. Everyone's looking after their own political um, backside, right? Yeah. And the New South Wales Premier wants, uh, the, sorry, the Victorian Premier wants everyone to go, over there they've stuffed it up and yeah. now we're suffering. That's the political imperative. Look, we, we can't ignore, though, the, the impact this lengthy lockdown is now having in Sydney on so many people. It is crippling for many families. The mental health impacts, the impacts on businesses they've spent their lives building, all of this is very real. 
And that's the pressure that Berejiklian's under here. And I just think whatever happens, we're about to see in the next month, six weeks, uh, one of the biggest and most difficult experiments of this whole pandemic in Australia. Does she relax restrictions? How does the country, but specifically Sydney, transition as vaccinations pick up into this next phase? I think it's going to be fascinating. I doubt it's all going to go smoothly, um, but buckle up. I think this is going to have political ramifications that run for a a long time. We're going to get into this with David Crowe, but one final question I'd like to ask you, David, because, you know, we're a national political podcast, although increasingly, let's be honest, we've we've analysed the states because this COVID situation has been exactly that. They're calling the shots. Yeah, right. That's how it's turned out. So we kind of like do state politics a lot now too, it seems. (laughs) Who would have thought it? We're very capable. But Scott Morrison... Right. He's, yeah. he's full of roadmaps. He's yep. full of, you know, it doesn't matter how you start the race, he told us this this week. It's how you finish the race. It so is the, a race. It's a race, <laughs> but it's a, the finish line. And I get what he's trying to say, although it's a bit, it's a bit tortured yeah. as, a, as a concept. Is he the one ultimately being held to account here? Well, I think he's being punished in the polls, and if that's being held to account, um, yeah, we're seeing. Will that. he be held to account well, electorally? I think it's really hard to know how permanent the damage is. There's no doubt he's damaged now, right? Um, you, you see it in the party numbers, and this week we saw it in the news poll personal numbers for Morrison as well. But how permanent that is? Does it stick until we are vaccinated and an election that no doubt will be pushed out now till May? Uh, you know, we could be in recovery. Everyone could be feeling great by then. It's very hard. I hope to, so. <laughs> well, but it's very hard to predict. You know, there's no crystal ball. Um, and at the best of times, I hate predicting what the future's going to do uh, yeah, politically. people can play it back. Exactly. Um, but right now, yeah, he is absolutely being uh, punished for this. And I'd say probably more so than, than the premiers. Even Berejiklian in New South Wales is, um, you know, for all the mistakes that have been made, and boy, there have been some big ones. Uh, I don't think she's being punished as much as, as Morrison. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> David Crow is the chief political correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspaper and our guest on the party room. Welcome. Hello, Spearsy, and hello, PK. Great hello, to mate. join you again. I love now, that opening sound of the uh, of the drinks. It's so not the mood we're actually it's currently just, in. It's just the one bright moment where you can imagine another world. Oh, yeah, non-COVID. it feels so far away. Look, David Crow, you are in Canberra, which had been doing very well COVID-wise, and look, generally has been. But I think there is. A looming lockdown there. Let's just touch on that very briefly before we get into everything. Um, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, but it looks like there's been a case and you might have a lockdown there, right? I think that's generally expected. As we're talking, we know that the Chief Minister here, Andrew Barr, is going to be speaking in about an hour. Um, but I think all the signs are that there'll be a lockdown because there's at least one case, I'm told. Mm. So that's where we're heading. And I think it's... In Canberra, they've already been putting in some restrictions, heavy ones around Parliament House, um, to follow the right rules. A lot of the people who normally work in the building aren't here anyway. They've been working from home. You know, officials in the Department of Parliamentary Services. The MPs are here, masked up, um, uh, QR codes in every different section of the building, not just for the building as a whole. So mm. if you go to one little corner, that's a different QR code. Um, pretty strict. And I think there's a sense that um, they want to continue that if at all possible. Um, I've spoken to MPs about the rumour of a shutdown in, in Canberra. 
and they want parliament to continue because they think it's important that um, that the, the nation's parliament continues to do its job, doesn't panic and go into some kind of um, closure because mm. of um, because of a Canberra lockdown. Well, Crowe, if you need any tips, any advice <laughs> on how to live through <laughs> we're, lockdown, we're on it. I know it's been a long while for uh, for Canberra. You, you barely barely touched a lockdown last year, but uh, uh, what will be interesting, Parliament. Um, is rising uh, tonight and is meant to rise for a week. I know a mm. lot of the Sydney and Melbourne-based MPs are just going to stay there anyway because their yes. parliament sits in mm. because of the <laughs> requirement to quarantine for a week. Uh, this will be interesting as to whether everybody now has to stay put in Canberra for that week if they want to attend the, the next sitting week. Um, Look, I, I'm sure not too many people have a lot of sympathy for politicians if that's the case, but it does. This does have ramifications for anyone who is planning to travel uh, as well. It, I suppose it is, it, we are in a world where um, even the politicians are caught up in the same thing that everybody else has got to cope with: um, the sudden border change that means you've got to race back home, mm. something mm. like that. And they have to watch this day by day to know whether they can go home. And I know with some of the Victorian MPs, they've got to toss up on when they go back, because they're probably going to have to do two weeks quarantine when they go back or two weeks home isolation. Mm. Some of the regional New South Wales MPs, um, if they're not in Greater Sydney, you know, they can still drive home. Um, that won't be an option. And I haven't been able to check with what it means for those from WA, Queensland, well, this Tasmania. Is, yeah, so this is just happening. So anyway, we'll, yeah. we'll see what happens. I'm going to jump to conclusions though, David, and suggest maybe this has come from Sydney. Maybe this case oh. has leaked into Canberra from Sydney. Wild assumption, I know, but... Just a question of time, wasn't it? Yeah, and, but this, and this brings us back out. to what... Yeah, we yeah. were just discussing before we came to you how other states, and I suppose Canberra, is feeling about uh, what Gladys Berejiklian is about to do in, in Sydney, you know, with... Uh, flagging some relaxation of some restrictions if vaccination rates are at a certain level. It's, it's certainly not going to be the 70% level that uh, the national cabinet's agreed on. So uh, how do you see this playing out? It just can't be a unilateral decision. No decision in, in a single state um, happens in that state alone anymore. I mean, that's the purpose of national cabinet. And I think it's very interesting that we see other state leaders, including... Most importantly, I think Daniel Andrews in Victoria, wanting to make sure that Gladys Berejiklian doesn't jump the gun, doesn't try mm. and relax things when the agreement is the state gets to 70%. Then you can talk about uh, phase B. That is the um, agreement. That's the agreement. And they all signed up to that. And so we can't have this talk about, well, hang on, 50% is going to be enough and we'll do some easing. But what I mean, if she does? What if she does? And what does Scott Morrison do at that point? I know technically... And constitutionally, he's limited uh, in yes. being able to control the states. But this will put a lot of pressure, more pressure on him, mm. won't it? Yeah, it would absolutely put pressure on him. He would have to use his authority as Prime Minister to stop a significant easing of restrictions too early in any single state. Now, but, but what does that as mean, you point does he, out, does he, actually, he cannot yeah, use a public health it? order. He has to use his power for persuasion. And mm. at the moment, I think it's, to be honest, those powers are pretty limited. I mean... Uh, that's the way a national cabinet has to work. They have to argue it out together and come to an agreement. And I think we're seeing um, so much friction in that group. And also, I think, a weakening of the authority of the Prime Minister. And so mm -hmm. I think it would, he would be obliged to use the authority he's got. But I reckon we've got to be totally upfront about this. He doesn't have a lot of authority. No, and there's, there's, the Premier's called the shots. This is fascinating. I mean, there's clearly friction between 
um, the Morrison and Berejiklian governments at the moment, right? We, we, we can see that. Um, mm. But a lot of briefing against each other. Yes. It's constant. Yeah. If, if, if uh, New South Wales does start to relax more than everyone else wants, I just wonder how this plays out. Does Morrison then publicly start criticising Berejiklian or does he still try to straddle the fence and say, no, this is still all okay and consistent? I mean, how, do, how does that play out? What does he do? I, I, I think this is going to be really interesting to watch. I can't second guess him, but I think he has in, tried to straddle the fence. The question is how long that goes on. I know mm. with talking to people in the party room, and I'm, you know, mm. we all talk to these folks, and you know, there's a strong view that if Gladys fails, that's going to um, reflect poorly on the Liberal brand and mm-hmm. on Morrison. So it makes his life much harder through to the next election. So they can't afford that failure. They really need to back Gladys. And that's why the backgrounding against um, the New South Wales government is so counterproductive for the federal government. You know, it's mm-hmm. so much about egos and friction and as Nikki Sava wrote in the papers today, you know, about, you know, the personal clash with ministers in New South Wales and Scott Morrison. It's totally counterproductive to the feds. You even dropped the F-bomb, apparently, uh, apparently to, uh, yeah. to Dominic well, Perrottet. I, one thing about that struck me, Polly's dropped the F-bomb all the time, right? Oh, so let's it. not be too coy about it. But it is <laughs> no, interesting it. that it was getting personal between them and they shouldn't and that it's be allowing leaked. that to happen. No, they shouldn't be allowing that to happen. Look, I just want to touch on one more point on this. And that's uh, the divisions inside even of the federal government in relation to Mm. the current strategy. Scott Morrison is now up against COVID misinformation within his own ranks again. This time, Nationals MP George Christensen went on a bit of a tirade in Parliament earlier this week. He said COVID restrictions are madness, called for an end to masks and lockdowns, saying they didn't work. So, you know, then then there was a condemnation of him um, in the Parliament, but there was, a, David, there was a bit of kind of, I don't know, I, I interviewed, I'll give you an example. I interviewed the communications minister, Paul Fletcher, and he really struggled even to denounce um, George Christensen, even though he said that's not their strategy. Seems that Barnaby Joyce said he did, you know, he doesn't agree with him, but they're all talking about his freedom of speech. This is a tricky one for Morrison, isn't it? It is very tricky. And I watched your interview with Paul Fletcher and I thought he could not even say I disagree with George Christensen. Mm. I thought it was. I gave him a few chances. You gave him four. I counted. <laughs> um, now, the other thing is um, when, when there was a motion in the parliament brought by Anthony Albanese to condemn the remarks of George Christensen, Scott Morrison didn't even name him. Uh, named George Christensen, that is. Voldemort. He couldn't mention, um, you know, the big, the big issue directly. And they're so coy about this because they've got that wing of their own party that's very exercised about vaccine passports, about personal liberty. We don't even know how a vaccine passport might work. Mm. Um, we do know that it's inevitable. People are going to be asked, are you vaccinated or not? And what does that mean for where, where they can go or even what jobs they can do? I think that's just the reality of a yeah, pandemic. But, but, but they're not... very coy about it. They don't want to divide their own ranks because they've got this conservative wing that's get ready, getting ready to go to the wall. Well, uh, Barnaby Joyce, just on George Christensen, Barnaby Joyce really belled the cat. Uh, this morning he was on News Breakfast. Uh, Lisa Miller was questioning me about this. And sure, he disagrees with what George said on masks and, and, and so on. But he said... 
on national television, don't poke the bear too much because he's on a on a we're on a thin margin as a government, right? If they lose mm. his vote, if he were to defect and sit on the crossbench, they'd be in minority. Now he he's admitted that he's admitted the reality that George has got them by the short and curlies. Who admits it though? But who admits says that out loud? <laughs> oh, I no. mean, does that mean every government backbencher now has freedom to say whatever they want? knowing that there's no way to punish them. And it's an insight into Barnaby Joyce's position, right, as leader. It is an insight. The but lack also, of authority to yep. pull any of these guys into line, uh, which then brings us, I suppose, to the whole climate change debate as well, and the tail wagging the dog on this too. Is this why um, Scott Morrison can't get to net zero by 2050 just yet? Uh, because of the, 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 the that section of the National Party that's put Barnaby Joyce in there and are, are clearly emboldened to uh, to dig in on their positions. It is a very similar dynamic, um, and it's a constant dynamic in the government. The one thing that's different about the climate debate is that money can be the answer. It can't be so simple an answer with uh, COVID, but with Barnaby Joyce, certainly I think with the Deputy Nationals leader, David Littleproud, if Scott Morrison and Angus Taylor can devise a plan that puts money on the table for regional Australia, I think they they have a chance at a deal. I think that Barnaby Joyce, while he has the title of Deputy Prime Minister, is really the Brian Harradine of the government. He's the independent um, wildcard who just wants a deal. And I think the question is whether the deal is going to be compelling enough for him to go back to regional Australia and not just farmers, but the resource mm. industry as well mm. and say, here's, here's net zero in an acceptable form where you get something out of it. I think it's very interesting that David Littleproud is very upfront about talking about um, compensation for farmers who lose land control of their own land. Land use, it's hugely contested in among scientists about whether soil carbon is really the answer, but I think mm. it's going to be a fundamental way in which the government tries to get the Nats on side. Yeah, so just just backtracking a bit. So we got the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, the IPCC report. It warns that global warming could push temperatures to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And this is what Scott Morrison said in response. Australia's record of reducing emissions stands above those who are claiming to achieve bigger things in the future but haven't achieved it to date. They haven't achieved it to the extent that Australia has. They can't claim the highest solar uptake on households in the world. They can't claim a rate of renewable uptake eight times the global average per capita like Australia can. Okay. We, look, we've achieved the emissions reduction that he's talking about there because of um, you know the, the previous decisions on land clearing, essentially. When it comes to what's happened in the energy sector, there really hasn't been much reduction at all. But look, uh, putting that to one side, David Crow, the other thing that struck me in that press conference from the Prime Minister was how heavily he's now leaning on the argument that China, India, other developing countries, but particularly China, they need to be doing more. They need to be at the table here before we agree to uh, more serious action. Um, this, this is an old argument, but it just struck me that Morrison is really playing that card heavily now. Yeah, I think he, he went out to respond to the IPCC because he knew it was better to be on the front foot. And he went out with that message about how it, was, it had to be about the developing world. It had to be about China and India and other countries. At one point in that press conference, Phil Curry from the Financial Review asked a question about regional Australia. 
by the time Morrison had got to the end of his answer, he was talking about Indonesia. Mm. Um, how he wandered there, I really still don't know. <laughs> but that's what on was boat. on his mind. Um, now, I don't think that was a particularly compelling, to be honest. I, I was underwhelmed. Let me be totally frank. I was underwhelmed by that message because mm. we all know the question really is about regional Australia and what Australian policy will be. I don't... I, I, governments in Australia have always said we want China to reduce its emissions. Mm. I, I, I think there's logic behind that. And look, it's a fair but, point, right? That it, it, yeah. It's a fair point. You read that report... Uh, China is the biggest emitter by far now. Mm. It does need to do more. That, that's that's clear. Fact, yeah. but, but the idea that um, you know technology, not taxes, is the line. That, that yes. technology. This, I mean, this, this is, is hardly thing. a revelation, right? We've I know. Known and look, <laughs> technology is 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 required yeah. to get there. And the, so we're, show us I the know we're talking over each other. Map. But but the thing is, at one point, it was interpreted as Scott Morrison has the answer for the developing world because he believes in technology, not taxes. I mean, let's just. Call that for what it Who is. Doesn't That's delusional. Right? Yeah. Australia's not going to dictate what other countries do on on reducing their emissions. That will be for them. But, um, what but Scott Morrison's in charge world. of is the Australian policy. Yeah, this is the extraordinary world we live in. We have the Deputy Prime Minister getting on radio, as he did with Frank Kelly this week, saying, show us the plan. Yeah. Oh, it's like... Great. But you're the deputy prime minister. Like, we're living in a parallel universe, are we not? I think we've got well, that, actually. Let, let's just have a listen to Barnaby Joyce uh, about who is actually going to come up with the plan. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. If you're going to just make an arbitrary uh, claim, oh, we'll get to 2050, that's fine. Understand the emotion. Under, understand almost the moral perspective of it. But you must lay down the plan. If the plan is... We're all going to go to electric vehicles in Sydney and Melbourne and around the nation. Fine. How are you going to do it? Uh, where's the power going to come from that's actually going to drive it? How's that plan? What's the cost? David, uh, he, you know, he suggested the CSIRO and other agencies will come up with the plan. Uh, by the afternoon, the Prime Minister in question time, when put on the spot, uh, sort of cleared that up and corrected his Deputy PM. Cabinet will actually have to come up with a plan. You bet. Guess Guess what? the government has to come up with a plan. I mean, at least Scott Morrison finally sort of confirmed it. But the point of the dynamic is the Nats aren't there. They're not going to help draft the plan. They don't regard that as being their job. Uh, I think David Littleproud is a bit more pragmatic, so it could be part of the consultations. But ultimately, it's down to Angus Taylor. He's the energy minister. When I asked David Littleproud, well, who's going to do this? He said it's the energy minister. So they're, they're turning to Angus Taylor it's on him to put it together. And he's actually in the same position that Josh Frydenberg was as energy minister in the last parliament, where he had to come up with that national energy guarantee and then Remember try well to get the party out. room about it. <laughs> not an easy uh, task, but no. that's what's on Angus Taylor now. And oh. not a lot of time. I mean, Glasgow is in yep. November. Uh, you would think that plan would have to be pretty well in the works if mm -hmm. it's going to have some level of industry consultation, party room consultation, nationals consultation. The clock's ticking on that you one. You bet. All right. Before we go, I just want to touch on this. Not for long, but I do think it's important. The Senate will set up an inquiry into the Morrison government's handling of the commuter car park program and its funds. Now, in an ordinary world, which we are not in, 
I think you know that because you're probably at home right now. Uh, this would be the biggest story in town. The, the federal government accused of misusing or, you know, pork barrelling $600 million to fund car park projects just, you know, often to suit themselves politically has, has been what's been revealed. A scathing Auditor General report found the shortlist of potential projects to receive funding was not based on merit. And this week, David Crow, <laughs> I just realised I have two Davids, David Crow, uh, we know that the Prime Minister was questioned on it and his answers were quite, well, extraordinary. He's like, that's the process. The Minister was in charge. Look over there. What was that all about? Dodging, dodging, dodging. Um, you know, like we know that from the audit report, 77% of the projects were in coalition electorates. A lot of it was in Victoria, where the government was so worried about losing seats and being thrown out of office. So they sandbags those seats with car parks, if you can do that. Sorry to mix the metaphors. Mm -hmm. um, now, um, they're totally exposed on the political calculations on the fact that there was a list of 20 marginal seats that decided where money went. 660 million in the total program. So that's a huge political skew and something they've got to account for. One of the problems is that the minister who was overseeing that, Alan Tudge, is no longer responsible for it and so cannot be asked in Parliament about mm. it. It's a, you know, such a weakness in the system. And Scott Morrison then shunts it to Paul Fletcher as infrastructure minister or cities minister. But there's one thing that, that, that we do know. They're now claiming... Um, indemnity or, you know, not having to disclose that list of top 20 marginals because it's a cabinet document. So that confirms that Scott Morrison was part of that discussion about the top 20 marginals. Alan Tudge denied even knowing about that list of top 20 marginals. Now we have cabinet ministers confirming that it was a cabinet decision. Mm. So they were in it up to their neck. Here's the question about what comes next. There'll be a Senate inquiry. That'll keep the issue alive and uh, they'll be able to call departmental officials. But Senate inquiries, Crowey, can't call um, mm. ministers from the lower house. They can't call ministerial advisers. So are the people who had their hands presumably all over this marginal seat list actually going to be able to give evidence? No, I, don't, I think that's unlikely. And I think that's one of the weaknesses in the oversight mm. system. Which raises then the question, what should a National Integrity Commission, yeah. what the rules should be there? Should they have the power, and I doubt the government will do this, uh, to actually call ministers, call ministerial advisers in particular, uh, who are the ones that really know what's going on? Advisers are a big group, as you know, in, in, in the ranks of the government now, but they're, they're not subject to the same scrutiny levelled on public, um, sect, public service officials. So that is a weakness in the system. I, I actually really worry about whether we'll ever get, ever get to see the list of top 20 marginals. Remember with the sports rorts program, um, the document, the key document was a spreadsheet that was colour coded by marginal electorate. Andrew Probin got that at the ABC. Mm. It was leaked and so revealed. We still haven't got that leak here. Uh, my plea to anybody in the public service would be <laughs> leak that document. Please leak that That is such an excellent ending to this conversation <laughs> with you. And the three of us are available. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very <laughs> accessible. Look, I, I yeah, exactly. That, uh, I, I endorse that wholeheartedly. <laughs> I've <laughs> never agreed more with a guest <laughs> ever in the sort of, what is it, four or five year history of this podcast. Hey, thanks so much for coming on, David. Thanks, Thank mate. you both. 
Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. Question time is happening here too <laughs> on the party room. And David, the bells are ringing. It means it's time for our question All time. Right. What do we got? This week's question uh, comes from Jackie's Human on Twitter. Hi, Jackie. I'm glad you're human. Um, Past PMs have used our position as one of the closest ally, US allies to do deals, a la the refugee deal. Why can't the PM get on the phone to President Biden and say, hey, can you relocate some of your currently excess vaccines? It's a good question. And I've heard this raised by a number of people. Now, a few points to make here. Yes, appeals are being made through our Ambassador Arthur Sinodinos in Washington to the Biden administration to do just that. Give us your excess Moderna or Pfizer. Uh, and we've seen the US give excess to other countries. Um, we know that Biden and Morrison may not at this stage be the bestest of buddies. And there's probably a number of reasons, whether it's our position on climate change, whether it was Morrison getting too close to Trump, you know, appearing at that rally in Ohio, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I g genuinely don't think that is the reason, though, why the US isn't funneling excess supply to Australia. I think this, to be honest, has more to do with the look of the US giving a rich country that's got very, like, relatively low COVID um, its excess supply when you've got poor countries with terrifying death rates, mm. crying out mm. for vaccine supply, unable to get even what we've got in Australia. Yes, there are some Republican voices in Washington banging the table saying, you know, our good ally Australia should get these excess supplies. I, I honestly think it's more about Biden wanting to do the right thing by developing countries and use vaccine diplomacy here as well where he needs to and counter what China's been doing in, in where he's putting the excess supply. I just don't think... Yeah, we might feel miffed about it in Australia, but I don't think for Biden it would be necessarily a great move to start sending excess supply down here. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Look, that's it for the party room this week. But we will be back in your feeds next week. See you, Speezy. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.